Good morning. Welcome to church here this morning. We're so glad to have you have you with us today and uh, looking forward to our time in God's Word. This morning we are finishing off a teaching series, at least this section of the teaching series we've been doing this fall in the book of Acts. And uh, starting next week and over the next few weeks, we're going to be preparing our hearts for the celebration of Christ who came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us for Christmas. And so we're going to be jumping into a Christmas series. And then um, we hope, Lord willing, to get back into Acts in the new year and keep walking through this amazing book of the Bible. So today we're going to finish off in the first bit of Acts chapter 6. So far... If you've been with us, you'll remember this. If you haven't, if this is your first Sunday with us, this is uh, just a little bit of some of what we've been seeing in these first five chapters. We have seen powerful spirit-led preaching and mind-blowing miracles in these first five chapters. We have seen ancient prophecies perfectly fulfilled. And we have seen prayer meetings that literally brought the house down with earthquakes. We have seen arrests and impossible rescues. And in the midst of all of it, revival has truly broken out. Lives have been changed left, right, and center. The church went from 120 people to 3,000 people to 5,000 people. And now we've basically lost count of how many people have been baptized and come to give their lives to Jesus. But as in the case of every single church, right down to today, we discover a text that tells us church can be messy. Anybody ever found that? I'm sure no one in this room has ever found that church can be messy. In the midst of all that God is doing, and that's what I've titled today's message, church can be messy. Church isn't always roses and butterflies and rainbows. It's not all just honeymoon glory stories and lightning bolt miracle moments and earthquakes and altar calls. And today's text is beautiful. It's a word that we all need to hear because it actually, it helps prepare us for when the mess comes towards us so that we are not shocked by it, like taken off guard. Like, where did this come from? I didn't know this was part of the story. It's, it's beautiful because it helps frame our expectations. See, we might hear, read the stories that we've been in so far in Acts chapter 1 through 5, and it's this incredible unity and together and power, and, and we might find like, that's really cool, but my experience of church hasn't exactly been that, and, and that might send us kind of awry, and so this text helps to frame our expectations. It helps with hope, because we may find ourselves in the midst of the mess, maybe now or maybe in the days ahead. And, and it gives us hope because it's like, you know what? We're not alone in that. We're not the first ones to feel the mess that can come about in this thing we call church. And it's going to guide us, this scripture, as a sort of navigator 
through the mess to answer the question, so how do we live to the glory of God in the midst of this reality that church can be messy? How do we do that? And so grab your Bibles out if you haven't already. If you didn't bring a Bible with you in fairly near reach, you should be able to find one in a seat in front of you. And turn with me to Acts chapter 6. And as you're flipping there, let me just set the scene for us. One of the other really crazy cool things that has happened in these first few chapters was this radical Holy Spirit-inspired generosity amongst the early church. Maybe you remember back to chapter 4 where we read about this a few weeks ago. In chapter 4, the end of that chapter, it says this, there were no needy persons among them. There's thousands of them, but there was nobody who was needy for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money of the sale, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need, which, which is an incredible picture of life transformation, isn't it? To, to think, man, God has so impacted my life that I am going to literally sell my home so that I can give the money away to help my brothers and sisters who are in need is an incredible display of God at work in the midst of the early church. But the underbelly of that amazing reality, as the church grew, more and more people are there by giving money and the needs are increasing because there's more and more people that are a part of it. And it created a mess. Trying to manage all of this, trying to organize all of this, that's where our text jumps in. Chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read through. We're in a shorter text today. I'll read through the whole thing and then we're going to walk through it. Chapter 6, verse 1, God's word says this. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented that, these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I want to highlight out of that text of God's word five lessons to keep in mind if and when and as we face the mess of church. Five lessons that come right out of the text 
to help us navigate, give hope, give help, guide us through times when church can get messy. Here's the first one. Exciting ministry can create unintended fault lines. Exciting ministry can create unintended fault lines. You know what a fault line is, right? A fault line is in our, in our world where you've got two masses of earth that come and they like bump against each other or they pull away. It's what creates earthquakes in our earth, right? The church at this point is well over 5,000 people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, which leads a loads of people giving and a whole bunch of people in need. And it has created a litany of very dangerous fault lines that could at any moment bring all that is happening crumbling down. I mean, in the first verse, it's just let me give you, let me reread verse one. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among the, them complained against the Hebraic Jews because there were widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so just in that one verse, let me point out a couple of the fault lines that are, are underneath the surface, potential danger points here for the church. First, there is a racial fault line going on here, right? There's a racial fault line going on where a bunch of the Greek believers are feeling wronged by the Jewish believers, and there is this racial fault line starting to show itself. There is also a, a class fault line very potentially under the surface, right? There are those who are giving a whole bunch of money and then those who are in need of a whole bunch of money and there is like hurts going on between them. There is also a control fault line here because all of the money that has come in has gone to the apostles so far, been laid at the apostles' feet. It's gone to a small group of leaders, these 12 within the church, and, and the leaders seem to have had things falling through the cracks. Will you relinquish your control? Will you just keep clinging to control? Will you acknowledge that stuff has been falling through the cracks here, leaders? There's a control fault line. There is also a philosophical fault line coming to emerge here. Which is more important? People to have their souls fed with teaching from God's word or people to have their bodies fed with food in their bellies properly distributed? Which is the priority? I mean, that's just a couple of the fault lines that, that come out of this very first verse. God's doing amazing things here. The number of disciples was increasing, but what's gonna happen? As these metaphorical giant plots of land come and potentially hit each other or pull away from each other, is it all going to come crumbling to the ground? Now, let me ask you a question from the text that we just read here today. From these first seven verses of Acts chapter 6, do you see any bad actors at play in this passage? 
Do, do you see anybody with, with a terrible motive going on here? Do you, do you see any Judas or Ananiases and Sapphiras or anybody that's trying to do something malicious or evil in our text? Do you see that anywhere? No, there's none of that in this text, right? There, there's none of that going on in the passage that is in front of us. Here's the lesson we are learning, friends, Bethel. Exciting ministry can create unintended fault lines. When God moves in power, sometimes, no, 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 actually what I found, what the scriptures even lead us to is almost always when God moves in power, these potential fault lines start to come up. God is working in people and it can always, almost always create, when he does, friction between us. God works, this happens because God works in different people differently. See, we each come from different spots on our spiritual journey. God is working amongst us at different paces as he leads us from different places. God works over here in a mighty way and then unintentionally stuff over here can get missed and fall through the cracks. God stirs up one person's passion and spiritual gifts in a particular area and then another person's passions and spiritual gifts in a different area and before we even realize it, God is working in both cases and yet it creates this fault line that can so easily lead to tension. I think the first big takeaway for us is this, Bethel. Don't be shocked by fault lines arising in our midst. Don't be shocked by it. Where did this come from? There's got to be something dramatically wrong when there feels like there's this tension that has just arisen. Don't be shocked by it. Don't run for the hills as if there's a disaster about to be had right here and we just need to avoid all of it. Don't try and squash it as though this must mean there is clearly a bad actor and evil going on in our midst. When exciting work of God happens, unintended fault lines develop. One person in our midst might get really excited about evangelism and be like, man, this is so amazing. We're planting churches. Let's go plant more churches because the next town needs Jesus. Okay, and then guess what happens? The Spirit of God works in another person in our midst and they are so burdened for the children of our church community. Oh, how our children need to be discipled. Our children need to be mentored. We don't have enough leaders in our kids and student ministry. Oh, we need more people to help disciple the next generation that are with us. Oh, and then along the way as well, you've got another person who sees the next door neighbor or hears about the needs of a hamper and they just start like they're brought to tears. How is there any neighbor of mine that doesn't have the ability to pay for a Christmas meal for their family. Oh, we need to respond with compassion and mercy to help those who need help right around the corner from us. 
Okay, now here's the question. Which of those three are right? Which of those three are right? They're all right. But do you know what happens when they're all right and they're all actually hearing the Spirit of God stir up their hearts in those different ways? They feel like, wait a minute, and fault lines start to get developed. And, and we start to feel like, well, if you're excited about church planting, that must mean you're not excited about kids. And if you're excited about kids, that must mean you're not excited about providing for those in need in our community. As if those are in contradiction. They're not in contradiction, friends. They are not in opposition. Exciting ministry can create unintended fault lines. These are opportunities for growth, for you, for me, for us together to refine one another and to see God do even more amazing things than we could ever imagine. Here's the second thing we see. The church is at its best when its servants serve in their spots. The church is at its best when its servants serve in their spots. In the midst of this conflict, we see the apostles do an incredibly humble thing. Let me read again for us verse 2. They say, the apostles, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men. We'll turn the responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles do not cling to control. You see that, right? The apostles do not cling to control. Everything was coming to them and through them, and they don't cling to say, oh, I just need to keep having all of the control. They take the posture of a servant. And specifically, they say, we are going to have these other seven leaders take on the load so that we can focus on giving our attention, verse 4, to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, some over the years, if you've been around church for a few years, maybe you have seen or heard people point to this particular text as an explanation, as a defense, as an evidence of the office of deacon in the church. Here's the first deacons being identified, these seven guys. Now, the Bible clearly talks about deacons in the church, the leadership role, office of deacons in the church. It's clearly in the scriptures. But, but I would suggest to you that this isn't the best text for you to go to to argue for that. I would suggest that because... The English word deacon that we would say comes from a Greek word which literally means service or ministry. One who serves. A, a deacon is literally one who serves. 
And the Greek word for deacon comes up in our text here in our English Bibles three times. Now, you might not catch this because the NIV translation that I read, I'm not sure what different translation you might have in front of you, but that normal one that we read here, you wouldn't even notice this. But this, the word comes up three times. It comes up in verse one. Their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. That's the word deacon, serve of food. In verse 2, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together, said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait. That's the second time. That's the word deacon, to wait to serve tables. It wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word, to wait on tables. Verse 3, we will turn our ministry over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry, deacon, same word, a third time, the ministry of the word, the deaconing of the word. All three of those words, deacon, serve, come up here. So the seven are to deacon and the 12 are to deacon. They're each to serve in their different ways. The seven deacon by distributing food. The 12 are to deacon by distributing, ministering, serving the word of God. It's, it's a whole bunch. The, the takeaway is not, I would argue from this text that we should see an office being formed here. The takeaway is the church is at its best when its servants are in their spots. The church is at its best when their servants are in their spots. The church needed the apostles to minister the word of God and to pray. And the church needed the seven to step up and serve by organizing all of the food distribution and the givings. Today, here in our church, we need God's servants to serve in the spots God has made for us. We need this. So if you call this church home or if you have a different church that you call home and you just happen to be visiting here, whatever church is your home, here's the takeaway. God has a spot that he intends for you to serve in, in your church. He has designed the church to be optimized in this way when his servants find their spots in the church. Our church and every church to thrive needs the right servants in the right spots in order to do all that God would call us to do. And our broken world that desperately needs the hope we have in Jesus Christ needs to see a church optimally representing him. Our world needs to see the church at its best. It needs the hope. It needs the love. It needs the display of God's glory working through his people. And the church is at its best when God's servants are in their spots. Here's the third lesson we see. Third lesson we see, all service is spiritual. 
And when I use that word spiritual, what I mean is not spiritual in maybe the way you would hear that in, you know, lots of people in our society. Oh, I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. No, I mean all service is from the Holy Spirit. That's what I mean by spiritual. The problem of our text that we're looking at here is a very practical one, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree with that? There's money coming in. It needs to be turned around and food needs to be distributed. It's a very practical problem, right? We, we need this to get organized. We need the money to be managed properly. We need a good operating finance committee. We need a good food distribution mechanism. We need a system. We need a structure. We need operations. This is very practical stuff right in front of us, which might lead you or I to think, okay, if we need to solve this problem, what kind of person should we be looking for? We should look for somebody who is really good in terms of earthly skill at operations and systems and structures and finances. Wouldn't that make sense to you? We need someone who has experience in those things. We, we need to look amongst the 5,000 and see who is the person who has the best resume in terms of running a food distribution system, an importer-exporter. Who is the person who has the best business knowledge and prowess amongst our congregation? Because we need to figure out this problem. Wouldn't you think that's where your mind would go in the face of a very practical problem like this? Is that where they go? Are those the criteria? Resume, business prowess, earthly wisdom. Is is that where they go in our text? Look at where they go in our text. It's not at all where they go. Verse 3. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. The criteria for these individuals is their walk with the Lord. The criteria, hey, look amongst everybody. I want you to find those who are full of the Holy Spirit and displaying the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's who we need to find. Now, look at a couple verses down. Look at what happens when they appoint the seven. Verse 6. They presented these seven men to the apostles. The apostles prayed and laid their hands upon them. Do you know what that is? That is a spiritual commissioning of these people, of these seven. Because they are entering into a deeply spiritual activity right here. All service is spiritual. Let me say that again. All service is spiritual. This means, dear friends, service to God is never just about the outward actions and doing the motions. It's never about that in and of itself. Maybe you think, now you 
probably don't say this out loud, but maybe these thoughts go through your head. Well, I'm just opening a door on a Sunday morning to welcome people in. I'm just moving a couple knobs on a soundboard or pressing the buttons on a computer. I'm just peeling potatoes down in the kitchen. It, it doesn't really matter if as I do those things, I do them really well. It doesn't really matter if in my heart I'm harboring unbitterness and unforgiveness toward a brother or sister. That's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really matter if my mind is consumed with anger or lust in all kinds of different ways. That's not that big of a deal. I'm doing the duty. Perhaps you might think it doesn't really matter if I haven't opened my Bible in weeks. That's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter if I'm living a double life where one thing is going on here when I'm in this environment, but the rest of my day is a totally different life. That doesn't really matter because I'm just doing the practical duties. Isn't that enough? No. No, it's not. It actually does matter. It matters what's going on in our hearts in every way that we serve, no matter where we serve. It doesn't just matter what's going on on the outside. It matters what is going on the inside because all service to God is worship. All of it is worship. Do you remember a couple weeks ago how seriously God dealt with Ananias and Sapphira when they came to worship and their hearts were not in the right place, but their outward actions looked fantastic? Do you remember what happened to them? You think it doesn't matter what's going on inside of me? God doesn't really care. God doesn't really notice. I can just do the outward actions and it'll be fine. Please, dear friend, go back and read Acts chapter 5 again. And let us be humbled by the reality that God deeply cares about what is going on in the inner you and I. All service is spiritual. And the mess of church takes Hold when we start thinking it doesn't really matter what's going on in my heart. That's when church gets, oh, so messed up. When I do all the outward actions and it's all faking compared to what's really going on in me. Here's the fourth lesson we learned. The church serves the whole person. The church, as God intends it, serves the whole person. God has made you and I and every single person on this planet with a mind, a body, and a soul. Those three things mark every human. Mind, body, 
and soul. And do you know when the mess of church really starts to take hold quite often? When we swing and emphasize one of those and neglect one or two of the others. And oh, how the church gets messy. We read in verse two, I'll read it again. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. It would not be right for us to neglect the word of God, is what they just said. Because the people have minds and souls, and so they need to have their minds strengthened and their souls nourished with the preaching of the word of God. They need to be led in prayer, taught in prayer, prayed for, because the people, we, they, every person has a mind and a soul. It would not be right for us to neglect that reality. But don't for a minute think this text is saying the body doesn't matter. Because what they say is, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect this, but we need to raise up seven who will look after the feeding of these widows. Because God made us with a mind and a soul and a body. All three. Jesus came to rescue the entirety of us. Jesus came to, to renew our minds, to rescue our souls from slavery to sin, and to give us resurrected bodies, and to live on a literal, physical, rescued and redeemed new heavens and new earth. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus wasn't just in his earthly ministry or what he accomplished through his ministry concerned with just our minds. He was not just concerned with our bodies. He was not just concerned with our souls. He was concerned with the whole person. And what we're seeing here in the early church is they're living that same reality out. Caring for the mind and soul of a person is vital. Caring for the body of people is vital. It is not loving to do one without the other. We are to do all of it. See, in church, God gifts some of us with a very real passion and burden for kind of the sides of this pendulum. There are some in our midst who God has given you such a burden for the word of God, to be passionate about the word of God and about teaching the word of God and about nourishing the mind and the soul and that is like, just fires you up inside. And I love that you are here. There are others in our midst who God gives you a burden and a passion for the, the broken and the hurting and the practical needs around us and the hurting bodies in our town and around the world. And I love that you are here. 
But if you find yourself swinging to one of those two extremes in terms of what God has fired you up about, can I give you an encouragement and a warning? Whichever side you swing to, okay? You don't have the corner on the market because God cares about both. God cares about both. God cares about the whole person. And what can happen sometimes that really starts to get a mess is we get really fired up about the compassion and mercy and ministry needs of practical hurting people in our communities, the lesser than, the forgotten, the least of these, the broken, the poor, the marginalized. And we get so fired up about that and we feel like all you care about over there is the word of God and we get so frustrated and hurt and wounded because it feels like they just don't care about people. What we mean when we say that, though, is they don't care about the body, is our perception. Or we get really fired up about the word of God, and it's like, why aren't you out doing more evangelism? Why aren't you preaching the gospel more? Why aren't you more diligent about teaching? Why aren't you so excited about the word, 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 and you don't really care about the souls of people and the eternity of people, and don't you really care? As if they're in contradiction as if it's either or. What we need to do is not get frustrated with each other. We need to stir each other up to say, yeah, you're right too. I'm really excited about the word. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you can tell. (laughs) It's why I do what I do. And like, to single out one person in particular, although there's like a whole army of this, because we talked about it today. After the service, go out into the Welcome Center and find Paige Woods to find out about hampers, okay? I don't know where you are, Paige. You're hiding right over there, okay? I love Paige because she pulls out of me something that isn't as strongly there. She weeps over these families in our community and it draws my heart out to be like, oh yeah, I need to care like that too. I want to be like Paige in that more. Oh Lord, forgive me for my heart isn't broken as much over that. We're not at odds. We're on the same team. Draw me out more into the image of God, Paige. That's how it's supposed to work and vice versa in all of this. Because the church is to care for the whole person. So we've seen the church can get messy. When God does amazing and incredible things, unintended threats can arise. We've seen to navigate those in a healthy way and honors God, we need to get God's servants serving in the right spots, their God-intended spots. We need to come back to the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us because all service is spiritual. We need to live in the tension, not try to solve it, but live in the tension that we are to serve all of a person, word, and deed. And then here's the fifth lesson. There's no I in church. 
There's no I in church, friends. The church gets messy when it becomes about me, right? The church gets messy when we start focusing on I, me, my wants, my desires, my ideas, my favorite things, my preferences, me, 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 me. The problem in this text relates directly to the key leaders of the church. The mess, the mess in this text is because of the apostles. Not that, they were, not that they were intentionally, maliciously doing something wrong, but it, it's, it's their problem, right? All the money's coming to them. They were in charge of distributing it out. Stuff was getting flipped, slipped through the cracks. Do you notice how the apostles in that moment didn't go on an ego trip? Who do you think you are telling me I'm not doing this right? I am an apostle. How dare you? You don't get any hint of that. They didn't go on a control bender. Oh, I need to look after all the money. I can't really trust anybody else. It's got to go through my, I got to sign off on the dotted lines. I know best. I am wisest. I am more organized. I am an apostle. They didn't, they didn't go there. They, they, they didn't say, oh, these complaining, whining old widows, just ignore them. They didn't say this church is all about me. They didn't say any of that. They humbled themselves and served and took the posture of a servant. Then there's the seven that get raised up. And, and they're not like, oh, I'm too good to wait on some tables. I, I am too spiritual and wise to be condescended to ask to look after the lowly widows. No, no, no. I need a more important job. You don't get any hint of that. They just joyfully jump in and serve. And then notice in this text that no one complains about the fact that the widows need to get food. It's not even on anyone's radar to even ask, oh, I don't really think that that's true. I mean, no one is thinking of like the, the frankly practical reality that the widows on a purely practical front added basically nothing to the church. They weren't strength. They weren't might. They weren't able to do a whole bunch of stuff and they clearly didn't have a whole bunch of money they were throwing in the coffers. But no one complains about that. The only question here is, okay, how can we serve them? Because in all of these cases, for the apostles, for the seven, for the people, for the widows, church doesn't have an eye in it. It's not about me. It's about how can I serve others? How can I lay my life down? Now, I want to commend you, Bethel, on this. As your pastor, 
I want to say thank you for how amazingly and beautifully I see you as a church living this out in so many ways. What we see in this church here is unity and humility won out. Not me, 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 but unity and humility. That's what won the day in this church. That's what won the day here when we read, for example, in verse 1, at the start of everything starting to hit the fan, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the work of God is doing incredible things. This is amazing. This is exciting. This is in, uh, the revival is breaking out. Miracles are breaking out. Look at what the Spirit of God is doing. And there's these fault lines. Oh, no, is it all going to come collapsing down? Is it all going to fall to pieces because of humility and unity? Look at how our text ends. The word of God spread, verse 7. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It didn't all come collapsing down. It kept going. The spirit of God was not quenched. The revival was not squashed. The snowball, snowball of God's spirit moving kept rolling down the hill and gaining even more momentum because of humility and unity. And I again want to commend you as my brothers and sisters for your humility and unity that is displayed in the midst of this congregation. And at the same time, I want to warn us because it's so fragile. And the me, me, me can rise up so quickly we can turn on a dime so easily to start thinking it's all about me. To start acting like this thing that we are here a part of is really about drawing attention to me. The ministries need to suit my needs. The, the programs need to run in the way I want. I need to be elevated to the position so I can have control. I know better than such and such over there. It needs to be all about how easily that can take root and how detrimental, dangerous, and harmful it is when we start thinking the church has an eye in it. That the church is about me, not the glory of God who sent his son to save us and rescue us and die and be raised to life so all attention would go to him. When we start making church about us, oh, the mess has taken root. And so, here, dear friends, there is no doubt that church gets messy at times. But what we see coming out of God's word is five things, five things. Number one, when God moves in exciting and incredible ways, it creates fault lines. Don't get shocked by that. Don't run for the hills. Oh, this is a disaster. No, no, that's what happens, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to put God's servants in the right spots, each one of us to serve where God calls. Amen. We need to remember that all service is spiritual. All that we do by the Holy Spirit. 
We need to remember we are not in conflict, but we walk the tension of serving the whole person for us and those in our community. And we do it with a heart of humility and unity. That's what wins the day, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.